Our passage is Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, Sin and Judgment. Therefore, let us fear, lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the gospel preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said in a certain place concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them fail to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying, Through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest any one fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Our apostle has been teaching and preaching about the wilderness generation since chapter 3. Since chapter 3 and through chapter 4, verse 13, he is preaching about the wilderness generation as an example and as a paradigm, as a type of the spiritual life, and not only their spiritual life, but everyone else's spiritual life. They are an example for us to understand what God did with them, what God said to them, and what impact or what implications there are for you and me. The Apostle is continuing what is known as a warning passage. 
The first warning passage started in chapter 2, 2, 1 to 4. The second one starts about chapter 3, verse 6, or chapter 3, verse 7, until 4, 13, our passage. At the beginning of chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 4, our last paragraph, he will encourage us to persevere, encourage us to press on, and, and encourage us to look to Christ as the perfect example. He is the perfect example in chapter 3, 1 to 5, or 1 to 6, and he is the perfect example in chapter 4, 14 to 16. He is the perfect example, the wilderness generation. They are the worst example. They are the imperfect example. The two are contrasted, and we are exhorted to follow Christ. If we do not follow Christ, the word of God will judge us, as it says in verse 12. If we do not follow Christ, then on the day of judgment, everything will be open and laid bare before God Almighty, and he will judge us, punish us. For example, also in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, they did not enter because of disobedience. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the example of disobedience. The scriptures here are presenting a very stark and a very serious warning to all of us. If we hear the word of God, we should not take it lightly. When we hear the word of God, we should not be considering it something that is common, something that causes us to be dull of hearing, as he says in chapter 5, verse 11, that you have become dull of hearing. We should never become dull of hearing. We should always be attentive and always take heed to whatever the Word of God says, because the Word of God will be used to test us before God Almighty on the day of judgment. It's better to be ready now and repent of sins now, believe in the gospel now, because once we die, it's too late, and then we meet the mighty, terrifying judgment of God. Repent and believe now. This is his same exhortation, and he uses a few examples. He uses the example from the wilderness generation and what they should have known, about God and rest from creation, and also what they should have known when Moses preached to them, what they should have known when Joshua delivered them or Joshua conquered the Canaanites on their behalf and distributed the land of Canaan to the 12 tribes. They also should have known when David, also a prophet, when he preached and when he warned his own generation. That is, from the time of Adam, Moses, Joshua, and David, in chronological sequence, he gives these examples of how they were preaching the truth, they followed the truth, and so should we. We cannot claim them as our examples or our forefathers, our spiritual forefathers, if we do not emulate them. And they believed in Christ, they emulated Christ, therefore we should also. 
Let's see this further. Verse 1. Remember, he's continuing to describe the wilderness generation that did not believe, 3.19 says, because of unbelief, and the wilderness generation, 3.18, were disobedient. Now he continues, 4.1, Therefore, let us fear, lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. He says we ought to fear. We ought to have the fear of God. The fear of God. The fear of God is not merely honoring him or showing him some respect, as often it is interpreted. It is not merely or exclusively that. It includes the terrifying judgment of God, the expectation, the knowledge that God is a God who is wrathful and he is to be feared, he is to be dreaded. Yes, chapter 10, chapter 10, 26 to 31, chapter 10, 26 to 31 of Hebrews. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This terrifying expectation of judgment, this severer punishment, this thought that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, this is what the generation of Moses in the wilderness did not believe. They did not comprehend. They did not believe it. They did not think that that was going to happen to them. And in contrast to the fear of God, he says, chapter 4, verse 1, while a promise remains of entering his rest. On the other hand, a promise is outstanding. A promise is presented. It's proclaimed. The promise is to enter God's rest. And this rest, we shall see, is not rest from daily work. It's not rest from annual work. It's not rest in having no enemies anymore and peace always. It's not rest settlement in the land of Canaan. It's not that kind of rest. This rest is eternal rest. God's rest that he is offering and promising is eternal life, eternal rest. The wilderness generation had no fear of God, thinking that there was not going to be any severe judgment and that 
getting into his rest was merely earthly things, short-sighted things. They did not have far-sightedness. They were not able to comprehend and believe in the life to come. They did not do that. That's why he says in verse 1, any one of you should seem to come short of it. He says, those who heard the word of God through Moses, the word of life, he says, it's not an idle word. It is your life, Moses said to them. That word, they didn't care for it. They rejected it. We also notice that it could happen to any one of you. Simply because we hear the Bible, simply because we hear the Word of God, or we read the Word of God, or we even memorize the Word of God, we have much knowledge of the Word of God, even though we go to church and hear the Word of God, all of that does not matter if we don't believe it. Because he says in verse 1, any one of you. Who is he warning? He is warning the hearers. He's warning the readers. He did so in 3.12. Take care, 3 verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Any one of you. It might be one of you. That's the point. Verse 13, 3.13, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Any one of you. When pride wells up, we think we've got it made. We're okay. There's no need to examine ourselves. There's no need for introspection. There's no need for self-examination. I don't need to test myself. I am safe and secure. Everything is just fine. I'm going to heaven. But are we? It depends if we believe the gospel or not. Verse 2. Verse 2, the gospel. Verse 2 says, For indeed we have had the gospel preached to us, just as they also. The translation or your translation may say good news, but the word gospel means good news. They have chosen in many places to say good news instead of gospel. But they, in verse 2, if they render it gospel, notice what he's saying. Indeed, we have had the gospel preached to us, correct? What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel, the person and work of Christ, culminating in His death and resurrection, according to the Old Testament Scriptures. So, we believe this gospel, He says, or we have had it preached to us, who also had this same gospel preached to them? Just as they also, he says, the wilderness generation. That means that Moses 
preached the coming Christ, dying and rising again on behalf of all those who believe in him. Moses preached the same. He says it again in verse 6. Since therefore, 4-6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Moses preached the death and resurrection of Christ to his generation. Let's confirm this fact, because if we do not confirm this fact, we will be liable to thinking that, well, Moses was just promising them the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. He was promising them health and wealth. He was promising them peace from their surrounding enemies. That's what what he was promising, and that's all he was promising. As long as they believe that, then they would be saved and go to heaven. No. It's not that nor anything like that. It has to be the death and resurrection of Christ. They had to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ to benefit from the promise of God, to benefit from the gospel Moses preached to them, because that's what he preached. We know that from Hebrews eleven twenty six. Hebrews 11.26 describes Moses. 11.26 Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. What are the greater riches in the reproach of Christ? Believing in the reproach of Christ the eternal wealth, the eternal riches. The reproach of Christ has to do with his death. Consult Hebrews 13, 11 to 14 to confirm that he's talking about the death of Christ in eleven twenty six. Moses was willing to identify himself with the cross of Christ. He was willing to do so, just as you and I should be. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That applies to us. It's the same gospel, the same expectation. Follow Christ wholeheartedly and reject the past, reject our sins, reject even ourselves, our sinful self. Luke 9.23, take up the cross daily. Luke 9.23, that was what Moses preached. But what was the problem? Was the problem ambiguity in what Moses preached to them? Did he preach a cloudy Christ? Did he preach a foggy faith? What did he preach? Was he clear in what he said to them? Yes, he was clear. The problem or the deficiency was not in Moses, nor was it in what God told Moses to preach. That's not where the deficiency was. Where was the deficiency? Chapter 4, verse 2 of Hebrews says, But the word they heard did not profit them, did not benefit them, was of no value to them, the word they heard. Why? 
because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They did not have faith in what they heard. They refused to believe it. Therefore, it was of no value to them. Therefore, it was powerless to them. How is it going to have power if they believe in it? Otherwise, it is going to fall on deaf ears. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 The gospel, the word, the same word that he's preaching right here, explaining right here, is only the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There must be belief or faith. It must take place. They did not. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. We who have believed, truly believed, enter that rest. We enter God's eternal rest. We enter if we believe. But the belief is always in contrast to what? Unbelief. Verse 3, as I swore, God speaking, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He has cited this passage of a couple of times or three times in 3.11, 4, verse 5, they shall not enter my rest, and right here, 4, verse 3. This passage is a quote from Psalm 95.11, Psalm 95.11, where David is writing these words, these words, but he's quoting God, explaining what God thought of the generation of Moses in the wilderness. And David is writing so that his own generation learns from the good example and rejects the bad example. And what's the, what happens with the bad example? God swears an oath in his wrath. Not in his mercy, not in his goodness, not in his love, but the opposite. For those who do not have faith, he is wrathful against them, and he vows, he swears an oath, which means he's not going to renege. He's not going to break it. He's not going to change his mind. It's gone and it's done. He is angry eternally, and the people who do not have faith will not, shall not enter my rest. But what rest is he talking about? Our apostle begins to explain. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Do you remember in the book of Genesis chapter 2, when God 
created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, 1 to 3, it actually says God rested on the seventh day. He rested on the seventh day. But why does it say he rested? Does God need rest? No. But the symbolism, the imagery is, just as God ceased from work, we must also cease from our works and we should enter the rest, the eternal rest that God's rest signifies. That's the point he's making here. Because God finished his work of creation, but then he still is preaching rest. Verse 4, For he has thus said in a certain place concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God rested from working. He also wants us to rest from working and enter his rest. We'll see later in this passage that in verse 10, he's going to explain that we rest from our human works which cannot earn us salvation and we enter the rest of God, God's eternal rest, by faith in Christ. Verse 5, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. God has a promise. God has rest. He offers it. He proclaims it. There are some who enter it and others who do not enter it. But we need to ask again, what is he talking about and how can we know? Well, if we read the Old Testament, study the Old Testament and read it carefully, we note that he's talking about something that Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 2, which first would have been taught to Adam and Eve. And now he's quoting, the apostle is quoting David in 1000 BC. From the time of Adam to David would have been 3000 years from 4000 BC to 1000 BC. That would be 3000 years between Adam and David. If that is the case, then why is God saying here in verse 5, they shall not enter my rest? Because David, in 1000 BC, he is not only a king, but he is the king in the land of Canaan. And he is king over Israel, all Israel. And David has already had rest from his enemies. In 2 Samuel, chapters 5 to 10, it describes how he has rest from all his surrounding enemies. And David is after Joshua. Joshua first conquered Canaan on behalf of the tribes. David later, he is still dealing with enemies from within and without the country, and he conquers them and basically delivers to his son Solomon a kingdom at rest. 
rest from enemies, surrounding enemies. So what is this rest? It has to be eternal rest. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Some will enter this rest. The rest of the people, the remaining people, and he not only means in the wilderness generation, but he means throughout all time. Some will enter it, the heavenly eternal rest, but those who refuse to believe will fail to enter it because they are disobedient. When the Word of God says we must believe, and we don't believe it, we end up being disobedient to the word we heard. And therefore, the wrath of God will come upon us. That is always the case. Always the case. Actually, keep our place here in Hebrews 4 and turn to a passage in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. This incident is taking place in the northern kingdom called Israel at the time. Elijah the prophet and Elisha the prophet both ministered to that northern region in 2 Kings chapter 7. They had 20 evil kings, and so they have misery, they have conflict, they have war, they have short reigns, they have assassinations, they have famines. And that's what's happening now, a famine. And notice... What happens to this man? He is the royal officer of the king. What happens to the royal officer of the king when he heard the word of God and a promise and he didn't believe it? What happened to him? Chapter 7, verse 1. 7, 1 of 2 Kings. Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour shall be sold excuse me, sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. The cost of those products is very inexpensive. However, you wouldn't expect it to be inexpensive because it's in a period of a famine when everything is very expensive. But it's going to suddenly be, he says, tomorrow. Suddenly, and within a day, everything's going to be inexpensive. Well, how in the world is that going to happen? That's because God gave Israel victory over the Arameans, who were invading them and about to attack them. He gave them victory over the Arameans, and suddenly the Arameans leave all of their valuables, all of their goods, all of their products, all of their food behind. They abandon 
so much of what they possessed. Now we get to chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 16. What happened to the royal officer who did not believe the word of God? 7.16. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And it came about just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. There's a parallel to the wilderness generation in that the wilderness generation In Egypt, they had plenty. In the wilderness, they had want, but God miraculously and daily provided for them. But otherwise, the terrain, it was devastated. It was barren. There was nothing there in the the wilderness, in the desert, correct? But God provided, and they were supposed to believe that God could provide and give them a better land, the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan even signified heaven above. Okay, now let's go back to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 8. Hebrews 4, 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now our apostle mentions Joshua. Joshua, the successor of Moses. Joshua, who conquered Canaan on behalf of the wilderness generation. Actually, the younger generation, because the older generation, they died and perished in the wilderness. The younger generation, led by Joshua, conquered Canaan. Conquered Canaan and gave them rest. Yes, indeed. Keep our place here. Joshua actually did give them rest, but our apostle says he did not give them rest. Did Joshua give them rest, or did Joshua not give them rest? The answer is, he gave them the rest of Canaan, yes. And he also preached the eternal rest. Joshua 21, Joshua 21, 43. Joshua 21, 43 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not one 
of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So the Lord did give them rest. Joshua did give them rest. But in contrast, he's saying that there was another rest, another rest that they should have known and they should have believed based on the symbolism, based on the typology of the land of Canaan. How so? Well, firstly, we've already said from Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3, God himself, he rested. And when he rested, he taught Moses the typology. He taught him the significance of it. Exodus 33 Exodus 33, 14. Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. And he said, that is the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 33, 14. My presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Who is the you in verse 14? In English, you could be a singular you or a plural you. But in Hebrew, it is a singular you. However, we have a dilemma. Moses did not enter the land of Canaan. That means that he did not experience the rest of of the land of Canaan, the land rest of Canaan. But God says here, I will give you rest. So what is this rest? It's not with the qualifier from all his enemies. So it must mean he's promising Moses that he will always be with Moses and will give him eternal rest. Because it doesn't modify or qualify it by saying, rest from your enemies. And the prophets. We'll look at two examples. One in Isaiah. There are a few examples, but we'll just see two. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30, verse 15. 30, verse 15. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. He says, In repentance and rest you shall be saved. Saved from sins. Isaiah is already living in the land of Canaan, and so are all of his contemporaries. 700 B.C. So the rest here is rest of salvation. The salvation of the soul. Just as Moses experienced it, Isaiah is preaching it, and so is Jeremiah. Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 6, 16. Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, 
Stand by the ways and see, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Verse 16 is actually quoted by our Lord in Matthew eleven twenty-nine, And our Lord clearly intends for it to have to do with eternal salvation, the eternal salvation of our eternal souls. And that's how Jeremiah takes it, because he says, rest for your souls, not rest from your enemies in a peaceful land where you can farm and ranch as you please in abundance. But he's saying here, rest for your souls. It's eternal rest, God's rest. And what did we notice in Isaiah and here in Jeremiah? The prophets are proffering eternal rest, but the people are unwilling. They are so staunch in their rebellion, they say, or Isaiah says, but you were not willing. And here they are quoted, the rebellious people are quoted And they say, we will not walk in it. They despise the promises of God and they ridicule the judgment of God. They don't believe in the judgment and they despise the promises. They say, we will not. Well, that is a constant perennial situation. No matter where the gospel is preached, everywhere and throughout all time. That's why Hebrews 4 is explaining it to us. God's always offering eternal salvation, and most people are always rejecting it. They might claim it, they might name it and claim it, but they don't really have it. Hebrews 4 4.10. Why don't they have it? 4.10 of Hebrews. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. If we did believe, we would rest from our works. What works? Works of sin works of unrighteousness, works of wickedness. Those works were the heavy burden on our shoulders. But Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, my yoke is easy and my load is light. They trust in their own works. They think their works are just fine. They think they do enough good. They think that their sin is not sin. So they think they are righteous. And they don't have to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. There's no need to have a substitutionary death. I don't need anybody to die for me. I'm just fine the way I am. That's the way they think. But if they repented, then they would have rest. 
as Isaiah said, in repentance and rest, you shall be saved. But they don't have salvation because they don't want to rest from their evil deeds. They want to keep them because they think their evil deeds are good and they are just fine as they are. Verse 11, 4.11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. He says, therefore, we ought to be diligent. What is diligence? Diligence is eagerly working hard to enter eternal life. Though it's called rest, between point A and B, if point B is eternal life entering heaven, the time and the experiences between point A and B encompass work, encompass diligence, encompass good deeds, encompass fighting, encompass striving, struggling against sin and sinners. Luke 13, 24, Luke 13, 24. Our Lord said, strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He says strive. He didn't say take a cakewalk. He didn't say it's a stroll. He didn't say take a leisurely evening stroll. He didn't say anything like that. He said strive. Our apostle says be diligent. We cannot be casual about it. Those who are casual and callous will not enter. Only the diligent will enter. Because, again, he says, anyone, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Why does the scripture have many examples of disobedience, unbelief, evil, multitude of sins? Why are they described and why are they in the Bible? Are they in the Bible for us to justify our own sins? Are they in the Bible for us to make excuses for our own wickedness? Are they, or are they in the Bible for another reason? Another reason. The apostle says, don't follow the same example of disobedience. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 10.6 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. The examples are here for us to learn not to do what they did, not to repeat what they did, but to avoid what they did, to repent of it. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment 
of eternal fire. Why do we hear so much about Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible? It happened in Genesis 18 and 19, but we hear about it again and again throughout the Bible. Why? And even in Jude 7, where Jude says that they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. He gives us the answer, just as Hebrews 4.11 gives us the answer, just like 1 Corinthians 10.6 gives us the answer. And what is the answer? Do not do the same sins. Don't follow the same unbelief. Do not be disobedient like they were. And if so, it will be to our ruin. Yes, to our ruin. Verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God that was preached to us is living, not dead. It is active, not passive. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not like a dull sword or a dull knife. It's sharp. That's the way it is in reference to our souls. It will do its work, and even the work of judgment, because he says it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is able to do it. When we hear it, when we read it, when we study it and memorize it, it inevitably judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart now. But also, the Lord is able to call it up on the day of judgment and say, I said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And these five million times in your life, you took my name in vain. You shall not covet. And he will explain to us, judge us, and tell us how many millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of times we coveted during our lifetime. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He will use it. He uses it now as a mirror and as a standard to test us. And he will do it then. Then in the afterlife is also in view because of verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No creature hidden from his sight. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and 
the good. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Solomon fronts evil there in Proverbs 15. Why? In order to preempt us from doing evil, doing it in secret, doing it in the dark, doing it in private, doing it when nobody else is around, however we might do it, he's saying it's still open and laid bare before the eyes of God with whom we have to do. That has to do with the day of judgment. He means, this is an expression, with whom we have to do, it simply means we are held accountable by him. He will hold us accountable. He will be our judge on the day of judgment. Yes, and this will be personally executed and flawlessly executed by whom? The one that nobody thinks is going to be our judge. It's going to be Christ. Acts 17.31, Acts 17.31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. God has fixed the day. God will judge the world but he has appointed a man, and who is that man? The man who has risen from the dead. That is Christ. Christ will be the judge, and he will hold us accountable. So much for the sugary views of Jesus Christ. That's actually heresy. Now, verses 14 to 16. Knowing this, then we should approach God. We should appeal to him. We should petition him. We should know that when we pray to him in faith, remember, he's trying to elicit faith. He's trying to inculcate faith in us. He's trying to arouse faith in us. And now, after doing it with a severe warning, now he's doing it with encouragement. We not only need to know what not to do, but we also need to know what to do. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We have the great high priest who is Christ, who has ascended into heaven. Verse 14 is explaining the ascension of Christ from Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11. He ascended into heaven. He passed through the heavens. He passed through the clouds. And the disciples witnessed it. They were eyewitnesses of this ascension. Who ascended? Jesus, the Son of of God. Since he accomplished, since he finalized his work during his first coming and ascended into heaven, which means he didn't die again, nobody found him, 
at age 110 somewhere. Nothing like that happened. He did not die. He was not buried later in life. That's the reason the ascension, one reason the ascension is so important to believe. He ascended into heaven. If he ascended and everything he said about his incarnation, everything he said about his first coming came to pass, culminating in the ascension and sitting at the right hand of the majesty of the throne of, on high, since he did that, let us hold fast our confession. Cling on to it. Cling on to what we confess. It says in chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, he starts with this and he ends with this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is our apostle and high priest, the one in whom we believe. So we have confessed belief in him, so don't give it up. Don't retract, don't go back, don't retreat as cowards do in battle. Don't retreat, face the enemy by holding fast. Holding fast is also like he says in verse 11, be diligent, be diligent, hold fast. Then what is it that we have? 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We have the added benefit post-incarnation. And after his incarnation, we have a real historical example of one who was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted, yet did not sin, not a single time, in thought, word, or deed. Sinless Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, 26, 7, 26. Speaking of our great high priest who has accomplished perfectly, resisting perfectly on our behalf. 7.26, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. He was made perfect forever in this sense. He was already perfect, but as he lived his perfect life, he became the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice for us to die for our sins. He was perfect from beginning to end in every way. So if he is without sin, then he could, can help us overcome sin. That's the point. 
He wants to help us overcome sin, the sin of unbelief and any other sin that is the product of unbelief. Verse 16, if he is without sin and can help us who have sin, what should we do? 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. We are exhorted to do what? To go with confidence to the throne of grace because the throne of grace will distribute grace. The spirit of grace will give us more grace. The grace of Christ will be given to us. So go there with confidence. He says further that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace in time of need. Sometimes this mercy will spare us from further temptations. Sometimes this mercy will deliver us from current temptations. And the grace will give us the wisdom, the insight, the power, the desire, the will to overcome sin. This is available to all of us if we ask in faith. James 1. James 1, 2 to 4. Or James 1, 2 to 8. James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we experience trials, we ask the Lord for wisdom in faith, and God gives us wisdom when we have stable faith. Not wobbly faith, but stable faith. When we have that, he grants us the grace to help in time of need. Second Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he has said to me, My grace, the Lord Jesus to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I, would, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the irony of the Christian life. God is not wanting our strength. He wants our weakness. It says it four times here in verses 9 and 10. 
weakness or weak. It says it four times. God wants us weak so that we see his power working through us and for us. He doesn't want us strong because if we're strong, we might be pompous. If we're strong, we might say, I don't need God. Who is the Lord? I don't need him. Remember, that's what Pharaoh said. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Remember also that Gideon had to learn a lesson. Gideon and the people, the men of war, had to learn a lesson in Judges chapter 7. In Judges chapter 7, there were 32,000 men of war with Gideon. 32,000. That's a huge number, and that's a good number. But God said that they were too many. And he, one by one, or in big groups, he got rid of them, and how many were left? 7-7, seven, seven. Judges 7-7. Seven, seven. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands, so let all the other people go, each man to his home. From 32,000 to 300, on purpose, to teach the lesson that when you are overwhelmed, don't be overwhelmed by the onslaught of the enemy, but have faith in God, pray to God, cling on to your faith, cling on to what you confess, and God will give you wisdom and he'll give you power to overcome whatever your obstacles are, whatever your trials are, he will do so. So go to Christ to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.